have a Bible with you. We're in Genesis. We're looking at the fifth chapter. We will look at the whole chapter today, but for our reading at the beginning, we will look at, we will read verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. And he died. Those are the last words that we read about Adam, and the story will go on without him. And he died. As we look at Genesis chapter 5, which is a genealogy, the the basic purpose of Genesis chapter 5 is to move us from Adam to Noah, uh, to move through uh, 10 generations that are recorded. It uses the word, and he died, again and again and again. We hear it 10 times. And he died. In the world that we live in, those are universal words. Every single one of us will at some point have said about us, and he died, and she died. Those are words that will land on all of us. The question is, what else will be said? of you when the words, and he died, are spoken. Genesis 5 is a genealogy. It's a very unique form of literature. It's sparse. It's economical in its words. It's, it's, if we're quite honest, not the most fascinating section of Scripture. We like narrative. We like three-dimensionality. All of this is is like a a report reading line after line. It's very formulaic. But it does do something in Genesis chapter 5. It does something in most places where we see genealogies in the book of the Bible. And that is it strips down our lives to the most basic facts. And Genesis 5 is no exception. Genesis 5 is going to have three individuals where something else is said about them besides the age that they were when they died. And the thing that it says about them is what epitomizes them, what is their essence, what can be said, what is noteworthy of that life. And as we go through this chapter, as we look at this passage, my question to you, What epitomizes your life? When the words, 
and he died fall on you, what else will we say about who you are, about what you were, about the difference that you made? What will those words be? You, you are breathing and living beings right now. You have the choice to make what those words are based on the life that you live. But I mark these words, everyone's life will be about something. It will be epitomized by something. And the words will be few. What words will be used to epitomize your life? As uh, many of you know, we are in a series called Far and Away. And the reason that we call this series Far and Away is not because of the Tom Cruise movie, which Kyle reminded me of this morning, but because Far and Away is the description of what has happened to this world that it has fallen into sin. Sin has made us far from the presence of God, and it has pointed us away from communion with God. And so far and away is to remind us that because sin has entered into the world, we live with a great chasm between God and ourselves. And that great chasm is illustrated in every single one of the stories that we're going to look at in Genesis 4 through 11. Last week you saw that far and away was, was shown in the great war that epitomizes the, the war of, of the evil enemy and, and God throughout all history. The war that was, was waged between Cain and Abel that pushes us into greater and greater opposition to, to God. And we saw how treacherous that war is that the enemy and sin advance rapidly, building strongholds, slaying the innocent, taking hold of the flesh. But even as that chasm seemed unbroachable at the end of last week's passage, we saw that God has still kept his promise that he has still sent a, a thread across this chasm, which is the promise that an offspring will come where he will eventually pull the bridge that will bring humanity back to him. And that thread was in the keeping of the promise of the offspring when Eve had her third child named Seth. This week, Genesis 5 shows us the chasm it shows us that because of the fall, we live in a world ruled by death. The words, and he died, are the most prevalent words in this chapter. Death is the chasm. We have been separated from the life of God, from the, the tree of life, and we die. Genesis 5 shows that we live in a world ruled by death, but there is still a thread still a thread that crosses the chasm. And that is seen in the genealogy in these three particular stories where more is told of us, something else that epitomizes these people beyond just their death. And it reminds us that life is still offered to all who center their lives on God. And so as the chasm and he died overwhelms us, we are going to put our attention and our hope in the fact that life is still offered to all who center their lives in God. 
Death is not normal. Genesis 5 wants us to recognize that. We have lived in a world so overrun by death and death so commonplace that we think it is normal. You look at the title of the sermon and it's backwards. We say life and death. Because those are the facts. Life and death. Death will come to all of us. Death is a part of life. Death is the end of life. Death in our world has as much existence as life does. They're one and one. But Genesis 5 wants us to realize death is not normal. Death is not the way it was supposed to be. The words, and he died, are meant to shock us and grieve us. This man, Adam, who was created in the Garden of Eden to live with God, to bear his image, we were never to come across the sentence, and he died. The the chapter repeats the words, and he died, eight times because it wants us to recognize that's the foreigner, that's the invader, that's that's the force of corruption that has come into this world. And he died is what we say for one and only one reason. Sin has entered into the world. Sin has become the nature of man. We die because we have inherited the sentence of Adam and the nature of Adam, which is to sin and to disobey God. Death is our inheritance from Adam. This is made explicit in in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, death is the consequence of sin. And the reason that every one of us faces death is because every single one of us is corrupted by sin. We have inherited a sin nature, and we have acted out sinful ways and sinful thoughts. And so the sentence of death, and he died, is the reality that we live in. But the words, and he died, are given to us to shock us back awake. Wait just a second. Isn't there an answer to this this sentence of death? Is Is there anything to hope in in a world that ends, and he died? The words, and he died, should provoke us to say, where is life? Where is a break from this terrible pattern? Can I be saved from this terrible sentence? Beloved, the words, and he died, are there 
to inflame a longing in you for a life that does not die. This chapter, though it emphasizes the the chasm of death, does not leave us dwelling upon that chasm, but focused on the hope that will fulfill that longing. That hope is seen as we look at three different characters in this genealogy that are given a brief expansion, an expansion that is meant to break the pattern of and he died so that we recognize that the story and he died is not the necessary end for everyone. Each expansion shows that life is offered to those who center their lives on God. That's the key thing. Life is still offered to all of those who center themselves in God. And so the question, if you are haunted by the words, and he died, is this question. Is your life God-centered? Do you know yourself through and in God completely? Is your life about God? Is your life for God? Is your life in God? The question before us is, is our life God-centered? That is the thread that covers the chasm of death. Well, the question should then be, what does the God-centered life involve? Let us go through this passage. Let us look at these expansions and see, do I share in these different aspects of the God-centered life? We're going to see that the God-centered life involves belonging to God. It involves being with God. And it involves believing God. Three very simple answers, and they all start with the letter B. So they're really easy to remember. The God-centered life, belonging to God, being with God, and believing God. But what do we mean? Let us look at belonging to God. The God-centered life involves belonging to God. We see this laid out for us in these first five verses that we have already read. Notice that chapter 5 goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, back to the creation of Adam to tell us that Adam was made in the likeness of God, that he was made in the image of God, and that he was given the blessing to multiply, to, to have children, to expand upon the earth. Genesis 5 goes back to that origin, to that beginning, and repeats that after Adam is outside of the garden to let us know this one truth. Being made in the image and likeness of God has not been revoked by our sin. Let us read verses 2 and 3 again. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see, the likeness that Adam had, which is the likeness of God, he fathers Seth. And Seth inherits the likeness of Adam, which is the likeness of God. 
God's image has not been taken away from humanity, but continues. Now, that does not mean that sin allows the image of God to have its full luster to shine. The image of God has been corrupted. It has been defaced. It, it has been marred and, 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 and grotesque. But it is still there. And it is because we are still in the image of God that all life possesses inherent dignity. It is the church's confession that every single person is made in the image of God that being part of the pro-life movement is a gospel issue because at conception, the image of God has been given to that preborn child. And we defend that child. The image is passed on. That's what verses 1 through 5 wants us to know. What's the meaning? What is the meaning of this image of God? Let's not complicate it. The meaning of the image of God is that God has made us for himself. We belong to him. That is what our image means. We belong to him. In the Gospel of Matthew, in uh, the, the last week of Jesus' life, some of the um, Pharisees or the teachers of the law, I can't remember which, they, they are trying to trick Jesus to get him in trouble, to get him in, in, uh, under arrest, to, to bring a sentence upon him. And so they, they've devised this great scheme. Oh, we've got a, a catch-22. They come up to Jesus and they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Is that the right thing to do or not? You see, the, 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 the teachers of the law were, were trying to get Jesus to side with the Romans and make him very unpopular with the Judeans. Or he was going to side with the Romans, or he was going to side with the, the, the Jews, and then he was going to be uh, committing a, a crime speaking against the emperor. There's no way to win this question. But Jesus is a pretty good, uh, uh, pretty bright guy, pretty wise. He instead asks this profound question. He asks for them to render to him a coin. And they give him a coin, and he notices that on, the Im- on this coin is an image and, a, and an inscription. And he asks the teachers of the law, he says, well, whose image is this? And whose inscription is this? And they say, that's Caesar's. And so Jesus says these words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What's he saying? He's saying if you're going to carry a coin with the image of the emperor on there, that coin belongs to the emperor. Give it back. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then when he says, and to God the things that are God's, what is he saying? He's saying there is more than just the image of Caesar on a coin in play here. There is another image being born. You bear the image of God. 
And because you bear the image of God, render to God what is God's. Just as Caesar possesses the coin because his image is on the coin, God possesses you because your, his image is on you. You belong to God by the simple fact that he has stamped his image on you. Now, this is where sin comes in. Sin rejects this claim. Sin rejects that, God, that I belong to God. The, the mantra of the sinful heart is, I belong to no one. I belong to myself. It's up to me. And the story of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the one who belongs to no one is the story of Cain. Cain departs from the presence of God. In chapter 4, he goes and he makes his own world. He makes a world in the likeness of Cain, a, a likeness of sin and treachery and injustice. You see, when we reject that we belong to God, then we create our lives and the world that we are in after our likeness. We create a world that is man-centered, us-centered. In contrast, Seth's line is a line that is committed to being centered on God, and it comes by the very fact that they recognize they belong to God even outside of Eden. How do we know that? Because in chapter 4, verse 26, it is the line of Seth that are the ones who call upon the name of the Lord. They recognize that they are outside of Eden, but they recognize they bear God's image and they belong to him and they are known as the people who call upon the name of the Lord. That's the beginning of being God-centered, to say, I belong to God. I am God's. So my question, as we consider whether we are God-centered, does your life declare, I exist because of God? I exist for God? Or does it declare, I exist for me? What's, what's the answer? What's the epitome of your life? I exist for God or I exist for me. Beloved, to whom do you belong? Second, being God-centered involves being with God. Now let us continue reading in Genesis 5 starting with verse 6 and moving our way down. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived, after he fathered Jared, 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived, after he fathered Enoch, 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The second aspect of the God-centered life involves being with God. Genesis 5 recounts 10 generations, and we went through the first uh, seven. And you heard six times, and he died, and he died, and he died. One of the ways that the Bible helps you know what to pay attention to is by setting up a pattern and allowing you to notice when the Bible breaks that pattern. That's a way for the Bible to say, pay extra attention. Because when we get to the story of Enoch, We do not hear those words, and he died. Enoch breaks the pattern. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. That's significant in the Bible. The seventh is always treated as the number of fullness, the the number of completion. The creation of the heavens and the earth is not actually finished on the sixth day. It goes into the seventh day when God rests. Enoch is the seventh, and in the Bible, the seventh is is always, or I should say at least often, the majority of the time, treated with significance. Pay attention to the seventh, because it represents the, the maturity, the fullness of the line. Enoch is the seventh of Adam. Lamech, in Genesis 4, is the seventh of Cain. Both of those are given extra detail. We go back and we look at at Genesis 4 and we see that Lamech invents polygamy. He marries two wives. He takes takes the the, the sin of Cain and he he, uh, he indulges it. He says if if, uh, Cain uh, uh, revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. He he takes what Cain did and he, he, he multiplies it. He becomes even more unjust, even more wicked. The the whole idea is that Lamech represents the fullness, the maturity of the line of Cain, the the, the wickedness of Cain in full bloom. uh, Enoch in in Seth's line represents the the, the story of the uh, fullness of this group of people, of the people who come through Seth. And what do we see is different between Cain, between uh, Enoch and uh, Lamech. Lamech is man-centered. He is evil. But Enoch, who comes in the seventh generation, we're told of him. He walks with God. He walks with God. That's what three words are given to Enoch. 
Walking with God is the essence of what it means to be God-centered. 365 years, we are told, Enoch walked this earth. This is the testimony of Enoch's life. This is the epitome of Enoch's life. He walked with God. This is the the essence of religion, of biblical faith. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where the prophet Micah boils down, what does it mean to be a, 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 a true Israelite? He says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Paul epitomizes what it is to be a Christian. In Colossians chapter 2, we we looked at this just a a couple months ago. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This idea of walking with God is the essence of what God is, wants us to be. We need to recognize that uh, to walk with God is, is, a, is the walk of faith. The author of Hebrews picks up the story of Enoch in his uh, magnificent chapter of, of faith in Hebrews 11, and he, he says this about Enoch, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How did he please God? Hebrews answers, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. To walk with God is to walk by faith. That is to be centered in God. I love that the, 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 the word is walk. It's a rich image. It's not an image that we can flatten. One of the things that I, I've, I've so enjoyed these last several weeks uh, is at 8 a.m., uh, all three of my kids get on the bus I have no kids for eight hours. But what I love, I, I, I love my kids. I love when they come back. But what I love is that it has opened up uh, a new opportunity for Becky and I to walk. Bus takes the kids, and then we just go out and we walk the neighborhood. I love that. Walking with my wife. Because when I'm walking with my wife, we're We're talking, and we're getting to know each other. We're getting on the same page. We're enjoying each other. We're at leisure, just going where we go. We're going the same way. We're going the same speed. We're going in the same direction. We're conforming our our, our path to each other. And we're going the distance. You see, the, the idea that, that is in, in, inherent in the, in the word walk is that to say you walk with God is to say that 
God is the center of your way of life. You are spending time with him. He is your pursuit. He is your joy. He is your constant company. You are knowing him and being known by him. This is a a time-soaking, patient, long-standing, ongoing relationship. 365 years And we say of that, he walked with God. To walk with God is to say, it's with God that I spend my time and my energy and my thoughts and my resources. It's another way of of saying the, the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And it's not a commandment that's burdensome. It's walking because that's your joy. There's a profound truth in this metaphor of walking. What we walk with is what we are becoming like. What we are walking with is what we are becoming like. In the book of Kings... The report of every king that comes and dies has this report. And this king walked with the the, the way of his fathers and did the sins that he did. Or this king walked in the ways of David and, uh, and, and, and did well. To walk is to become like your the, the one you were walking with. And so the question is, as you look at your daily walk, what are you walking with? What are you becoming like? Are you walking with Netflix? Walking with ESPN? Walking with the SEC? Are you just a book of of gushing anecdotes about trivia? Or are you walking with God? Are you walking with fashion? having the latest and the best? Are you walking with God and therefore are becoming godly? Or are you walking with the world and therefore becoming worldly? You probably can't answer that for yourself. The answer to that question is going to come from whether or not the people around you are seeing God or are just seeing another person fitting in like everyone else? Are you walking with God? The God-centered life does not end. That's the beautiful thing that we see in Enoch's story. Enoch's last words were not, and he died. It was, and was not, for God took him. You see, God in his grace gave Enoch an escape from death. Enoch doesn't taste death. And God puts the story of Enoch in this march of death in this chapter so that all who pay attention would recognize that death is not the end for those who walk with God. This is the good news Jesus said in in a chapter uh, in John chapter eleven when Lazarus his friend had died he said 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Beloved, walk with God. Be centered in God. And death is not the end. The gospel message is death and life, not life and death. We are the answer to this chapter. If you are hoping in Christ, death is not the end. And he died are not your last three words. That you are raised again becomes your story. Because you will walk with God forever. Beloved, what are you walking with? Who are you walking with? How do you answer Jesus' question? Do you believe? Because that's the third part of the God-centered life. The God-centered life also involves believing God. And let's look at verses 28 to 31. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, we see a break in the genealogy when we come to Lamech. Adam's ninth, he gets a quote. He gets to share some words with us. His words, let us hear those words again in verse 29. Uh, He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech's words recognize that this world that Adam created by the fall, it's a world full of suffering and, and hardship. There's a lot to despair. There's painful toil. It's bleak. It's gone on generation after generation after generation. Yet Lamech's words are not negative. They are hope-filled. They are hope-filled because they are attached to naming Noah. And he fixes his eyes on Noah and says, that this one is going to bring us relief. On what foundation does Lamech have that hope? He has it in only one place. He has it because God has spoken in the garden that through the offspring will the victory over the evil one occur. And so Lamech is saying in in looking to Noah, I am trusting the promise that God gave that it's not me. (laughs) I am not the one that is delivering this world, but I am looking to the next one. I am looking to Noah. I am looking to the fact that the offspring continues, 
that there's where the relief is going to come. This becomes even more prominent, more clear when we recognize that this is the second Lamech that we have met in just a chapter and a half. The first Lamech was from the line of Cain. In chapter 4, verse 23, Cain's Lamech, he blasphemes the word of God. He says, if God punishes Cain sevenfold, I punish people seventy-sevenfold. Here we have the, the Lamech of Seth's line showing trust and belief. I want you to see something, though. When you recognize Cain's line and Seth's line are going side by side, I want you to recognize something because this makes this point really, really relevant. There isn't a single person on the face of the earth in these chapters that doesn't believe in God. Everybody in Cain's line knew God. God existed. There wasn't a question about God existing. Nobody was an atheist. There wasn't a line of of people who did not know that God existed and a line of people that did know that God existed. That is not how these two lines are differentiated. How are these lines differentiated? Not by believing in God. One line believes God. And the other one does not believe God. Cain's line believes in themselves. It is Seth's line that takes the word of God and makes that the foundation of their hope and their obedience and their life. They believe God. They believe his word. They are obeying it. They are relying on it. They are hoping in it. Seth's Lamech shows that God-centeredness is a faith that lives on God's word no matter how hard it may be. You, You recognize in Lamech's statement, there's a whole lot of not good going on. This world has gone bad. We're, we're, we're within a few hundred years of the flood, which is the place where God said, it is really bad. <laughs> we're going to start over. Lamech recognizes this is a bleak situation. This is bad. But he is choosing to believe the promise. He is choosing to believe God that even though every generation seems to be worse off than the last one, I am putting my hope in the promise of the offspring. I believe God. And that is incumbent on every one of us to grasp. If you are simply here because you believe in God, but you're not actually obeying him, you're not actually living what he says, you're not actually hoping in him, your life is more or less centered on yourself, well, you have a lot in common with the line of Cain. It is those who are conforming themselves, walking with God, believing in his word, following it and doing it even in an unpopular world. They can say that they have centered themselves on God because they believe God. If you believe God, you will stick out. You will be unpopular. You will get yourself in the minority. But you believe God. And his promise is the thread that pulls through, that does not break. And if you hold on to that thread and the whole world rejects you and ridicules you, you still 
will have life and life everlasting. Beloved, is your life believing God? Does God's word change your mind? Does God's word conform you? Does God's word hold you to unpopular beliefs in the world's eyes? Death is not the end for the God-centered life. The God-centered life involves belonging to God, being with God, believing God. But in this chapter where death marches on, we see that those who are God-centered, who belong to him, who are being with him, and who are believing him, have a different hope, a different outcome. The good news is that death has been swallowed up in Christ. Christ has died our death. Christ allowed the words, and he died to be declared over him that you shall live might be declared to you. He died that you might have life and life everlasting. Paul summarizes this whole idea in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You are in Adam if you have been born, but you are only in Christ if you have centered yourself in him by belonging to Christ, by being with Christ, by believing Christ. Are you in Christ? That is what matters most. Amen.